0: Start Luke eighteen, I want you to realize something that in order for this to make sense that um, last week Pastor Mitch preached out of Luke seventeen and he preached a great message didn 't he? Yeah. It was a great message and um, and this flows right out of that, and you need to understand that in verse in chapter seventeen of Luke, Jesus was talking about his second coming, um, he was talking about that he would come again unexpectedly after his crucifixion resurrection, that he would be crucified, he would raise from the dead, he would ascend to the Father's right hand, there would be a period of time, a gap, and then he would come back again unexpectedly. And in chapter 18, he's dealing with that same idea, but he's dealing with something a little different. He's dealing about how we are to live in this gap between his ascension and his, his second coming, his return. You know, where Jesus is right now, the Bible says, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he's going to come to rule and reign. He's going to come again to completely establish his kingdom. That his kingdom is, is alive now in our lives. It rules over us because we willingly come under the control, the umbrella of, the, of King Jesus. We live under his rule and reign, but the whole world does it. But someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to establish that where the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's going to establish his kingdom over everything, over the entire cosmos. But here we are, you know, in January 2020 and we're living in this time in the in-between. We're living in a time of the in-between, in-between his ascension, in-between his return. And... We've got to think about how do we live in the kingdom now? How do we live? We're, we're kingdom residents now, but it's not fully established. How do we live now in a kingdom that the scripture says is just as real as it's ever going to be, but it's not yet established over everyone, so most of the world has no concept of living in the kingdom? How do we live? How do we live in the in-between, in this time in the in-between? So in chapter 18, Jesus gives us some instructions as to how to live well in the in-between. How would we live? How should we live in the in-between? How should we live in 2020? Well, the first thing he says has to do with where we focus our attention, where we put our focus during this time a time when life can be challenging and sometimes it can be unfair and sometimes it can be good, sometimes it can be happy, but sometimes it's a challenge. So in Luke 18, let's start in verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses, and Jesus is going to deal with this topic. Now, he was telling them a parable. This is flowing out of chapter 17 where he's talking about a second coming. And he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray And not lose heart. So that's what the parable is about. You ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, "Give me legal protection from my opponent." For a while, he was unwilling. But for a while, he was unwilling. But afterwards, he said to himself, "Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection." Otherwise, by continually coming to me, she's going to wear me out. And the Lord said, "Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God and you could put a parenthesis here who's infinitely a billion times better than that judge, bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and will He delay long, well, delay over long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, first of all, notice something, because it seems like that last sentence seems out of place. That how Jesus ends this parable, he says, however, when the Son of Man comes, or we could say come again in context, will he find faith on the earth? He says that because he's talking about living in the in-between. He's saying, so when I come back, he says in a parable, about this, but and when I come back, what's it going to be like? Will I find faith? So he's talking about living in the in-between before he returns again to fully establish his kingdom. And what do we see about the time in-between from Jesus' parable? What are the things that we see? What's he trying to communicate in his parable? Well, first of all, I see this, that it can be a time of challenge and injustice. That the story he tells, it tells about a widow Who kept coming to an unrighteous judge to find justice because she was being mistreated. And I think this is a really important thing for us to to just settle in our hearts so it doesn't surprise us that sometimes life is unfair, it's unexplainable. Sometimes life hurts. There are things in our lives that just don't seem to add up from our perspective. And if I'm faithfully following Jesus, we could say things like, well, then why am I sick? His kingdom rules. Why am I sick? Why did my plans fail? Why did my relationship fall apart? Why did that business that I start not succeed? And what we see in the parables is that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things. He tells a story about a good person being mistreated. But what does Jesus say about that? He's not just saying, hey, life stinks, deal with it. That's not what he's saying. He didn't stop there. He tells a whole story about it. He sets it up saying sometimes it's tough. But he says something. Keep praying and justice will come. Keep, that's his message. Keep praying He says, I tell the story so that you ought to pray and not lose heart. He says, keep praying and justice will come. Now, Jesus is talking about something I think very particular here. He's talking about where we focus our attention. I want to explain that. He's talking about where we put our focus, where we focus our attention in life, during life in the in-between. He says, will not God bring about justice for his elect who do what who cry to him day and night. Jesus is telling us to continually day and night turn our attention back to him. To take our focus off the difficulties and to look to him, to place our trust in him. He says to cry, give our emotion to him. And I believe here he's talking about an approach to life where we keep him in the center of everything. We look to him for wisdom when we need wisdom. And there's all kinds of times in my life I don't know what to do. And what's the human natural default setting? We say, well, let me figure it out. Let me read a book. Let me ask a friend. But he's saying, no, 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 there's another approach to life, that when I need wisdom, the first thing I do is I ask him. That we look to him when when we're in need of provision. But what's the natural thing? Living in the in-between. I look to my friends. I look to my family. I look to my, to my church. I look to the bank. But he's saying, no, in the in-between, I want you to live a life where you're looking to me first. He says, look to him when we need justice. Look to him when we need everything. It's a life of choosing to turn to him First. Instead of relying solely on ourselves, he's not saying you don't rely on yourself, but he's saying the first part, the gaze of our life is upward, that we're looking to him. I think what he's doing is he's assuring us that in this in-between time that he really is available, he's saying, he's saying "Listen, look to me, I'm really here. I know you don't see me, but you're never alone, because when you're in Christ, you are in Christ. And he's here for us in everything. We just need to keep looking toward him instead of just the normal human default setting of simply relying on ourselves or looking to others first. And the apostle Paul has something to say about this same thing about living in the in between. In his letter to the to in Colossians, in the first chapter or in the third chapter, rather. He writes this, chapter 3 of Colossians, the first four verses, he says this. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Look, he says, when Christ is revealed, we shall share in his glory. He says, that's, that's this side over here. Remember, in the in-between, that's this side over here. When Christ is revealed, in all his, in, in revealed, that you will share in all his glory. But until then, in the in-between, what's he say to do? Set your sights on the realities of of heaven. Think about the things of heaven. He says, not the things of earth. In other words, he's saying, like he said in, in, in Luke, look to me, cry out to me day and night. So both Jesus and Paul are giving us some advice that in the in-between, we choose where we will focus our attention, where you will put your trust, where you will look to for answers. And friends, I think it's this, it's a choice to keep looking to God in a world where everything is pulling your gaze away from him. Think about your life. Isn't that true about your life? Unless it's intentional that you look your gaze upon the Lord, nothing else will cause it to happen. Everything in this world pulls your gaze away from God. It's a choice to keep looking to him. It's a choice to get up in the morning And to spend time meeting with God in his word and talking through your day with him. That's looking to him. That's thinking on the things of heaven. It's a choice to look to him for wisdom when you face whatever challenges come your way in a day. It's a choice to turn off the... Am I old? Anybody ever think of turn off the TV? Turn off the TV. Turn off the TV or the phone if you know what I'm talking about, turn off the TV. You know what I mean, turn off the TV? It's good to see you. You've been in a hospital all week, and you're doing great. You've been in the hospital all week, and you're doing great. You turn off the TV. It's a choice to turn off the phone, turn off the computer, and then do whatever you can do to connect with the living God more fully. That's what we did during our week of fasting and prayer. We made choices. We made choices to say, I want to fix my my sight on the realities of heaven. So we, we denied ourselves certain food or certain in, engagements that would take our attention away or uh, that we, we put things aside and said, God, we want to make a choice to focus our attention on you. Paul and Jesus are saying, make the best choice. Pray and keep on praying. Set your sights on the realities of heaven during a time that feels nothing like heaven. Because often life, I'm pretty sure, Gary and Debbie, you don't get stuck in snowdrifts on the way home from fasting, from prayer Saturday night on the in heaven. Pretty sure it doesn't happen. This doesn't feel anything like heaven. But he's saying, where do we keep our attention during this time? Now, after telling us to keep our focus on the right thing while living in the in-between, Jesus then does something that's a gift for us. He does something. He's saying, okay, he's talking to people who are actually following him. And he says, listen, in this in-between time, I want you to keep your focus on me. Look to me first and everything. Have this, have this, um, this decision in your life that you're always going to look to me first. And then he looks at us, these people who are going to look to him first. And he does something that could feel hard, but it's out of love and it's a warning. He gives us a warning. He gives a warning to all the people who do choose to live our lives continually looking to him. And this is his warning that he does next. He says, listen, my children, guard your hearts against religious pride. And I think he's saying this, guard your hearts against thinking that all the religious trappings are what your life is made of instead of those things being access points to connect with me in, my, in, in your life. So he's saying, listen, don't be sidetracked just by the emptiness of religion, in, of practices. Instead, always remember the same way you're looking up, keep looking up even in those things. And what I think he is trying to do is to show us the danger we face in this in-between time. You know, first we we talked about we know that he has come in the flesh and we know that he has promised to return, but that in this time in between we have his long. And we can stop really looking to him because we can get our eyes off of him. So he reminds us keep looking up. But then this next thing, he also knows that during this in between time, the very structure of our religious lives is that are intended to keep us looking to him can actually become stumbling blocks because we put our faith in them instead of looking to him. And that's what the next two stories in Luke 18 are about. Jesus tells two stories. And each of them, each story, he contrasts someone, first of all, whose religious life has led them to a place of self-reliance instead of God-reliance. They're looking to the religious life instead of looking to him. And he contrasts that with somebody who embodies the right kind of heart, whose focus is right, while they're living in the in-between. So he contrasts someone whose heart is wrong, contrasted with somebody whose heart is right. He does it in two different stories. So let's look at the first pair that Jesus contrasts. Look at verse 9. He tells a story about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. He says a publican. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went in, up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself... Will be exalted. So what think of this? What do you notice about the Pharisees' religious? Remember, the box, the things that he does, the good things that he does. What do you think about the religious structure in his life that's intended to keep him? Remember, the structure is designed to keep him looking to God? What do we see about his religious life? He's doing it right. He's doing the right things. Look what he says: he doesn't cheat, he, he's not unjust. He doesn't commit adultery. He fasts two times a week. He pays tithes on all his income. He sounds like a really good guy. Here's the truth. We'd elect him as a deacon. We'd appoint him as the pastor. He looks like a really good guy. All the things he does, fast, tithe, the things he and then the things that he doesn't do, commit adultery, cheat people, are all... Part of the structure, their external behaviors, that's part of the religious participation that he does. And he looks good on the outside because of his religious obedience and observation and all the things that he does. So then what's the problem? His inside, his heart. Jesus says he was telling this story to expose the error, look what he says, of people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now look at the other guy, the tax collector. He wouldn't even look up, but he called out to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. On the outside, his life was full of challenges. We don't know about this guy in particular, but we know in general the tax collectors were a bunch of cheats, and they were traitors. So we don't know much about the outside of his life, but on the inside he knew that he desperately needed the mercy and love and forgiveness of God in his life. Jesus contrasts these two guys in the way of showing us what's important for our lives in the in-between. Now, is Jesus saying that the external behavior, that structure of the Pharisee's life, that religious structure was wrong, and that the ex- external behaviors of the tax collector were right? No, he's not saying that. Jesus isn't promoting swindling others, as a tax collector probably did. And he's not discouraging us for proper Christian behavior, godly conduct, you know, not committing adultery like the, adult, like the Pharisee didn't do. Rather, Jesus is showing that there is something more important than the externals that we do, and it's the heart. And what he is particularly saying is that for those of us who do see the value in living a good life of external honesty and integrity, where we do participate in good spiritual practices like fasting that we did this last week or praying or tithing, he's saying that we be sure to guard our hearts, that we make sure these are not substituting um, are not becoming a substitute for our reliance on him. That that, that that the religious external is not becoming a substitute for the heart, the internal. And what I think Jesus is saying is that it's easy to make such an error in the in-between. I think that's his point. It's easy to fall into that trap. When so many things around you seemingly have no connection to God and his ways... Those who do what's right are different. We act differently. We do different things. We, we set aside a week for fasting in order to connect with God. We do crazy things like give a portion of our resources to the work of God so that we can plant churches in other countries when we could use those resources to just buy something bigger and more. And Jesus is warning us to not come to believe that it is in those good things that make us right before him. He used the word righteous. Make us righteous or right in his eyes. No, those eternal things are good and they're helpful and they're necessary and they're right. But what's most important, he says here, is our humility. A condition of our heart. Our understanding that God is the hero of the story. And that he wants us to look to him and that all we have and all we are is really a result of his kindness and his grace. And that's what Jesus is explaining in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house, the the sinner, the tax collector, justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is warning us against the, deceptive, the, the subtle deception of thinking our religious expressions are what's most important instead of knowing that it's our love for and reliance on him that's the most important. He's saying, I think it's challenging to keep this straight in the in-between. And because this is such a big deal, it's such a subtle trap, Jesus does something, Scripture, I should say, Luke does something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, to, to, make, to put a, an exclamation point at the end. He tells another story to reinforce the exact same point. Look, starting in verse 15 of, of Luke 18. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them but when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, "Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them from the kingdom. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, everyone who does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child like a child will not enter it at all." And a ruler questioned him, saying, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. But when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, "These thing, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Again, what we have here, Jesus making A comparison. He tells about a rich young ruler who is, by his own admission, has done all the right religious stuff from the time he was a youth. He is doing all the right stuff on the outside. But Jesus does something. The master teacher who knows the heart of man does something. Jesus reveals the reality of his heart with one request. Sell all you have and follow me. Jesus knows the truth about his heart. His real God was his money. So when Jesus challenged him to put Jesus before his money, what did he do? He walked away. Once again, Jesus is exposing that someone could look good on the outside, but they may have a heart that's far from God. And this is, I think, the point. Yet they may not even realize it themselves because they place as highest value their external religious behavior. But when the right question is asked, the truth is revealed. Will you really place following Jesus above everything else, he asks. He asks the rich young ruler, and I believe he asks us. Will you even place Jesus before your wealth? Will you even place Jesus before your comfort or your success? Or the opinions of others? Then Jesus contrasts that man with the little children that were brought to him to be blessed. And what do we see about the little children? They have right hearts. Kids are willingly dependent. They easily come to their parents for whatever they need. And their grandparents. Now little Callie, who's starting to talk a lot now, she knows something. She can get anything from Papa. I tell her all the time, anything you want. You come to me, I'm not your parent. So she has a, she has a, she's not yet figured out how to properly communicate, obviously, in a lot of ways. She's two. But she says, show me. What show me means is I want to show you something that I want. So the second I walk in the house, she says, every time. Papa, show me. Papa, show me. And what she wants you to do is I give her my finger and she leads me wherever, and it's usually to the jelly beans or on top of the refrigerator or to the refrigerator. It's always food. I never thought about that. You feed her more. Um, She eats. That girl never stops eating. She never stops. Or it's for a banana or it's for an apple or it's for whatever. What are the new things we found at Costco, these new little Waffles, rubles or something they're called. They're phenomenal. She wants one of those things. They have, they, have, they have caramel in the middle. And so she always says, Papa, show me. Papa, show me. The other day I came home. They were all home. I came home. I sit down because there was not a chair in the house. I sat down on a fireplace mantle. Susan sat down, Papa, show me. She takes me in a room. I'll come back. Papa, show me. After about 30 minutes, I said, doesn't she ever ask anybody else for anything? You know? But that's a little child. A little child looks to the one who has the resources without any thought and just says, Papa, show me. I mean, that's the way he's saying we should live. Papa, show me. In everything, we look to him. Can we see the point that Jesus is making in these two stories? Little children and the tax collector in the temple exemplify the kinds of hearts we need to have in the in-between. Between Between Jesus' first coming and his second, he knows that it can be a challenge, and it is a challenge. He says sometimes you're going to be mistreated. Things aren't going to work out right. You're going to forget. You're going to say, are you really ever coming back? He understands that. It can be a challenge. So he tells us, keep looking to me. Keep looking up. Keep looking to me. I really am your source. And he says, now listen and be careful that all those really good religious things, that box, that, that, that rhythm of life that you establish, of the spiritual disciplines in your lives and the, and the right things you do and the things you choose not to do because you're a follower of Christ. He says, be careful to guard your house and not think that those things are what it's about, that those religious observations or religious duties and religious obligations are what it's about. He says, that's what the rich young ruler thought. That's what the Pharisee in the temple thought. They thought that it was their things they did. But when Jesus drilled down and got to their heart, he exposed something different. He says, don't think that that religious life that you live is a substitute for having a heart that depends on Jesus. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing, because remember, as Jesus is doing this and he's teaching about the time and the in-between, he's only teaching out of love and grace and wanting to help us. What I think he's doing is he's reminding us that he really is here for us. And he says, listen, I want you to trust in me. That lady, the, the lady in the first parable, she went you know, over and over and over and over to the unrighteous judge. There's a point where Jesus said, he's saying, listen, I know there's times when it seems like it's just not working out. But what's he say? Keep looking. Keep looking looking he's saying i want you to pray and not lose heart in the in-between depend on him call out to him and let's not settle the other the religious trappings they're right and good but those are only avenues to get us to look up they're avenues the worship today avenue to get us to look up Fasting, an avenue to get us to look up. Praying, an avenue to get us to look up. All the religious things we engage in, giving, an avenue to look up. That's why we make such a big deal every single week when we take our offering. We don't just say, take your offering. It's why you go, he's got to say the same thing or a similar thing every single week. Yep. You know why? Because I want to make sure we're doing this. We're looking up. It's just not, oh, religious duty, write my check, put it in the basket. It's never this. It's always this. He wants us to look up and realize he really is here for us. That's the message that he's teaching in chapter 18. And what an awesome message. And I think the right response is we just ask ourselves, we evaluate. We look and say, am I looking at this, the box I'm creating, religious box? Because you wouldn't be here. Being here today... In a cold, blustery day is part of your religious box. I'm glad you joined me. I don't want to preach to empty seats. But it's part of this, and it's it's necessary, and it's wonderful, and it's formative, and it's essential. But this, attending, isn't the goal. This is the goal. Are we looking up? So we ask ourselves, we evaluate, God, am I like the rich young ruler who said, I'm doing it all. I'm doing it all. Jesus said, what what must I do to get eternal life, Jesus? He asked Jesus, and Jesus says, well, you know. He says, well, I've done all those things. He did all those things, but he didn't have this thing. A heart looking up to Jesus. Let's stand together this morning. Can I ask you to do something different? I want to. I want to end. Can we end by singing "Waymaker" again? Mitch is going. That means I got to go up. Can we end that way? Am I messing you up? What's that? Only oh, in a box. So here's the deal. We're going to sing this song in just a minute, as a way of saying. I know who you are. I'm looking up to you. I'm looking up to you. And I want to use this as a time of evaluating and saying, Lord, I want to have a right heart. Before that, let's just close our eyes together. Let's have just a private moment before that. Before we evaluate, you know, we're saying, yeah, I'm one that's all in. And I am all in, and, and, I, and I'm doing the stuff. And we're going to evaluate and look and say, you know, I'm doing the stuff, but am I doing it because I want to look up or just because it's obligation number six? But before you ever get to that point where you're just doing religious stuff, there comes a day in your life you have to ask, have I ever come to the point in my life where I recognize that Jesus really is God. And that as God, he calls me to come into his kingdom and to be his follower. That I go from being my own God and following my own way to saying I'm not God and you are God. And I want to follow your way. And Lord, to do that, that means I need to change direction. I've been living my life where I'm following my own way, but I need to change direction. The Bible uses the term repent. It says repentance means you have an epiphany in your mind. You go, oh my goodness, I'm walking in the wrong direction, and now I need to walk in the right direction. The wrong direction, living your own way, the right direction, following after Jesus, and saying, I want to live for you, with you, in your kingdom. And as you look at your own life, you say, I don't know that I've ever done that. This could be the day you could say yes to that. This could be the day that you could change direction. And as we're just in a moment of of privacy right now, you might be surrounded by people, but you're in a moment of privacy. Everybody's eyes are closed, their heads are bowed. You say, Pastor Mark, something's going on inside of me right now. And I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. I've not before. Or I did a long time ago and I walked away and I'm ready to come back. I want to say yes to Jesus. If that's you in this private moment, I want you to do something just between you, me, and God. I want you just to slip up your hand, just raise it up high. When I see your hand, I'm going to tell you to put it down. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I just want to say, i want to give you a chance to say yes. And I believe having an action is really important. Saying yes. All right? I see that hand in the center, you can put that down. Anybody over to my right, your left. All right. Before we sing this morning, we're going to do something. We're going to just pray together. And I'm going to invite everybody in the whole congregation to pray with me. You raised your hand this morning saying yes. I'm saying yes. I'm serious. I'm saying yes to Jesus. I want you to join in this prayer. And it's just a it's something that all of us, most of us have prayed at some form in our lives. There's nothing special about the words. It's just an invitation from our heart to God. So we're going to pray this out loud. Pray with me this way. Say, "Dear Jesus, today I recognize I need you." And I'm changing direction. I've been following my own way walking my own path and today I recognize that I need to follow you so on this day I make the decision to respond to your call you're calling me and I'm saying yes and so I'm going to change direction and I'm going to follow after you So Lord, on this day, receive me as your child, forgive me of my sins, make me brand new, and show me, Lord, how to walk with you. So Father, today, I receive salvation in the name of Jesus.